Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Every year, the Times reports on thousands of deaths of notable people. Some are intensely personal. Others have the power to make the world pause in grief. 2022 will be remembered for some of those moments. The BBC is interrupting its normal programmes to bring you an important announcement. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Alongside Her Majesty, we lost a host of giants this year, from Madeleine Albright to Sidney Poitier, Mikhail Gorbachev to Meatloaf, Shinzo Abe to Olivia Newton-John. When the news breaks of the death of a famous person, one particular corner of the newsroom comes into its own. The obituary writers chronicle the life and times of some of the most notable people in history. So what's it like? to be on the obituary's desk when the news comes in of one of the most historically significant deaths in living memory. Well, today's host can tell us. She's Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times. Alongside very well-known figures, every day she and her team cover the lives of many less well-known, though no less fascinating, characters. She'll host today's episode and introduce us to some of them. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a life well-lived, remembering those we lost in 2022, with Anna Temkin. When Queen Elizabeth II died, her Times obituary, all 16,000 words of it, was published online within seconds of the royal announcement. In many ways, for me and my colleagues, it felt quite surreal. This draft of history, after years of finessing, was finally seeing the light of day, there in the paper of record for people around the world to read. But the prevailing sense was one of calm and composure. Because this, of course, was an event for which we were very well prepared. The obituary had been meticulously crafted and updated over decades, 
to reflect every twist and turn of the monarch's long life. For the obits team, part of the job is keeping on top of what we call stock obituaries, those written in advance of the subject's death, and we have thousands of them on file at any one time. The Times has been publishing obituaries since the mid-19th century. Before that, it simply printed short death notices along with birth and marriage announcements. But that changed when John Thaddeus Delane became editor in 1841. He realised the Victorian readership wanted more information on the prominent figures of the day and that their deaths would, in themselves, be news. Rising to the occasion required preparation. Over time, the remit broadened to include not just famous faces, but people who had made interesting or important contributions to society. I wanted to focus on some of them in today's episode, with the help of the Life and Times feature on Mariella Frostrup's Times radio programme. Let's turn first to the American pilot Gail Halverson, better known as the Candy Bomber because of the part he played dropping chocolates and chewing gum to hungry children in the Berlin airlift after the Second World War. Mariella spoke to the Times obituary writer Tom Dart about Gail's amazing life. Western allies and Russia were in a dispute over the future of Germany and the partition was causing an increasing amount of tension between the war allies and in 1948... After the introduction of the Deutschmark, the Russians began a blockade of partitioned West Berlin, meaning that there was an incipient humanitarian crisis with the risk of the population starving and being deprived of essential supplies like medicine. And so Britain and the US quickly initiated air supplies landing in Berlin's Temple <laughs> Airport. And ultimately, over 11 months of the blockade, 278,000 arrivals of supplies kept the people in Berlin alive. And Gail was a a US Air Force cargo pilot in Alabama when he heard of this and he volunteered to take part in the operation. And uh, that was when he arrived in Berlin with 20,000 pounds of flour and then saw the children at the end of the runway and wandered over to talk to them. And that was how how it all began. I think that the story took a a slightly interesting turn as well uh, when a reporter got involved and a chocolate bar. That's right. So Gail Haverson, he was uh, at the fence at the end of the runway in Berlin talking to these German children and he was very impressed by their maturity when he was talking to them and he decided to give them whatever he had in his pockets, which was two sticks of gum, which he broke in half and gave them. And there was about 30 children, but there was only four pieces of gum. And of course, the children who got the gum were delighted because it was a rare treat um, given how deprived the situation was and how little food they had and certainly didn't have treats like sweets and candies and so he resolved to, to come back the next day when he was going to make another another landing with more supplies came up with the idea of dropping chocolate and and sweets in little parcels with handkerchiefs as a parachute and so he did this he he said look out of my plane when I'm I'll wiggle the wings just before we land so the children would know it's him, and then watch out for the the parachutes of chocolate kind of dropping down. And it was such a great success with the children that he did it again with his crew and pooling their rations uh, the next week. Um, and again, and the crowd 
of children grew and he, they started writing letters to his base, addressing him in, as Uncle Wiggly Wings and the Chocolate Flyer. <laughs> and he was getting a bit worried because he hadn't asked permission from his superiors to, to do this. Um, so he was thinking that he might get um, in trouble. So he was going to make one final drop. Uh, and after that, um, he got called into a meeting at his base near Berlin. His commanding officer uh, was holding a German newspaper and was saying, look at this, you're in the headlines because you almost hit a reporter on the head with your with one of your candy bar parachutes. And now the story just, well, today we'd say it went viral. It quickly went uh, around Germany, Europe and the world and really captured the imagination of of the American public. And so far from being, you know, court-martialed for his uh, failure to ask permission, Howison was becoming a hero and uh, a symbol of, of, of kindness in this very difficult situation where Britain and the US were you know, doing all they could to prevent starvation and a, and a humanitarian crisis. And he was doing something very kind for the children of Berlin and it quickly uh, expanded into ultimately 18 tonnes of chocolate over the uh, 11 or so months of the blockade. Gail Halverson, who died in February this year at the age of 101. Regular readers of the paper will know that Times obituaries are unsigned. That's partly because it's the newspaper's official record of a person rather than the writer's take on them, and partly because several writers will often update a piece over many years. Now on to our next unsung hero. The mathematician Shirley McBay was the first African-American to receive a doctorate from the University of Georgia. Growing up, she witnessed lynchings outside her front door and went on to devote her life to encouraging diversity in science and maths education. Mariella spoke to Times obituary writer Tom Dart again, as well as another Shirley, Shirley Malcolm, who was a colleague and friend. Let's hear from her first. She was tough. She was uh, exacting. She was committed. She was passionate. And it was an honor to work with her because that was someone who really believed that we could make a difference and set out to do that. We were both born in the South. We both grew up during the Jim Crow era. We went to schools that were under-resourced. And I think that you become really quite uh, aware that that kind of injustice really translates into a passion to remove the injustice. Mm. Tom, she was born in 1935 in Georgia. Uh, what do we know about her experiences growing up in this racially segregated state? Yeah, she witnessed uh, several horrifying racist incidents when she was five. There was a, a African-American who'd been wrongly accused of raping a white woman who was being lynched, dragged behind a Model T Ford to his death, and his body was dumped outside the courthouse. One of her cousins drowned in the local river because uh, the swimming pool there was whites only, so the only option for black people was to swim in a, a dangerous river. And two of her cousins uh, fled to Florida, fearing they'd be lynched after they got into an argument with a white woman at a, a grocery store. So it was an atmosphere of violence and racial tension that she grew up in when she was young. And uh, even when she went to university in Georgia, there was still race riots um, when that university was integrated, um, led by the Ku Klux Klan. So a very, uh, very um, you know, 
tough racial environment to grow up in. And she was a maths prodigy, I believe, at just 10 years old. Where did her talent take her and how hard was it for her to follow her skills? Yeah, she was brilliant at maths from an early age. Um, She was doing a year's worth of the maths curriculum in in a couple of weeks, standing uh, on a stepladder or a a kind of box to reach the blackboard when she was doing equations because uh, the blackboard was too high and she was so so short because she was so young and in a class with older people. So she was uh, clearly very gifted. She ended up getting master's degrees in uh, maths and also chemistry before she went to the University of Georgia to get her doctorate in maths. Mm. And and surely she was the first uh, black student to receive a doctorate from the University of Georgia. I mean, it's an incredible feat in itself, but but also must have required great fortitude and, and bravery on her part, because as, as t- Tom just said, you know, this was a time when there were riots over black students being accepted. So how did, how did that shape her, do you think? I think that it just increased her resolve. She knew that she wanted to finish her degree. And she lived with a Black family uh, that was nearby. And she was doing all this while trying to balance her life as a wife and mother to realize she d- it did not take her very long uh, at UGA to get her PhD in mathematics. And remember that in addition to being the first black to get a PhD. She was the first woman that came out of that department, which is really amazing when you're thinking about these kind of what we call the double bind of trying to deal with both of these aspects at the same time. Outside of her work, what was she like as a woman? She was fun. She wasn't just a professional colleague. She was a friend. And uh, sometimes we decided that on our lunchtime, that kind of at, when I was with her at the National Science Foundation, that we would go into her office, we would close the door and play whist. <laughs> and that would be the way we would un- unwind. <laughs> that we would relax, you know, you uh, a bite of the sandwich, a play of the cards. <laughs> I love it. That's such a great image. Um, Tom, tell me a bit about her campaigning successes. I mean, she became a, a prominent advocate for underrepresented groups in STEM subjects. Um, she she talked a lot about why advocates like her were and still are necessary. Um, and I think she even produced an influential investigation at one university. That's right. Um, she was Dean of Students at MIT in Massachusetts. And In uh, 1986, she uh, produced a quite influential report examining the racial atmosphere and the climate. And the report revealed quite a lot of structural racism. Black students felt isolated. They felt they were being stereotyped. There were incidents of professors and students who believed and sometimes uh, openly said that black people were not suited to subjects like maths and uh, engineering because they supposedly lacked spatial awareness. So some shocking findings of serious levels of racism on that campus. And it was uh, one of the first um, introspective reports commissioned by an American university into racial climate on Mm. campus at the time. Uh, She also addressed a congressional committee in 1985, pointing out that that year in 1985, only seven black people in the US got doctorates in maths. And at that time, there were 29 million black people in the US, so shockingly underrepresented. Just finally, Shirley, how will you remember your friend and colleague, Shirley McBay, aside from in the whist, secret whist room? I will always remember her on May the 4th, which is her birthday, but it is also my younger daughter's birthday. 
And she was so thrilled that Lindsay and she shared a birthday. And she says, of course, she will be excellent in mathematics. And she is. But in fact, Lindsay went to MIT and is a MIT grad. And so she was thrilled at this. And I will always remember her on Lindsay's birthday. Shirley McBay, who died aged 86. Coming up, we'll hear about the classicist who inspired Mary Beard. But first, a word from a colleague. My name's Andrew Bill and I'm a features writer on The Times. I spend most of my days interviewing famous people from Diana Ross to David Cameron. My job is to find out what they're really like. I can only do that thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In May, we lost Professor Peter Maitlis, a distinguished chemist and fellow of the Royal Society who conducted research into the metal palladium. 
Mariella Frostrop spoke to his daughter, the veteran broadcaster Emily Maitlis. He was this curious combination of fierce intelligence. He was very funny, but both meanings. And he was very curious, um, both meanings. And he was quite irascible and he was quite short-tempered, but he was also incredibly giving and thoughtful and wise in his advice. And he's left a real hole in our lives because he was just always such a, a big presence. He was the, the sort of centre of the room. Tell me a, a little bit, because he had a, a rather extraordinary life and a very lucky escape. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, whenever I look at the dates side by side, I sort of have to draw breath because he was born in January in 1933, two weeks before Hitler came to power. And so obviously the story of my family could have been very different indeed. I wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. But he he was born to a Polish father and his mother, I think as was quite customary in those days, had given up her German identity or nationality to become the wife of a, a Polish man. And as it turns out, that would later save their lives, really, because my grandfather, who was this Yiddish scholar, incredibly sort of eclectic field, which was writing about folklore and, and mysticism and, and sort of Yiddish tales in Germany in the 30s, had just got himself tenure at the university. And then he got pulled in and told, actually, you shouldn't take this, you should leave. You know, this is not a good time for a Jewish family in, in Berlin. And so they left and they came to first to Manchester and uh, then to London your father then grew up in North London. He got his PhD from Queen Mary University. What did his work focus on? His work centred on palladium. He wrote a book called The Organic Chemistry of Palladium, and it was about the widespread use of palladium as a catalyst, and it was how it was kind of used in industrial processes involving hydrogen. And we were none of us chemists. You know, my mum wasn't a chemist. My, my sisters really weren't particularly scientific. And I sort of think of that as a a huge tribute to him that he was he was a very eminent scientist in his field. You know, he was made a fellow of the Royal Society and he was a, a Fulbright scholar and he, he studied at Cornell and at Harvard. And yet, actually, he sort of never foisted it on any of us. His interest went much wider than, than his work. If you asked him his great loves, he'd say Maria Callas and opera and requiems of, of Verdi and Mozart. And he was wonderfully knowledgeable at, at art and his sort of student friends would all turn up at these extraordinary um, places. There was, there was a story that somebody told in, in his funeral of how he'd worked out when he was a student at, in, at Birmingham University that he could get to see Maria Callas at Covent Garden Opera by helicopter because one of the helicopter companies was offering five pound tickets for students. And so he dutifully turned up you know, at Birmingham Airport and got helicoptered into watch Maria Callas at Covent Garden Opera for, for the princely sum of five quid. And he was the only person on the helicopter. He also sounds um, at times like a bit of a nutty professor. When he was sort of wanting to be uh, divested of his daughters, he would say, go and play with your molecules. Is that right? 
<laughs> yes, there was there was always a box of these molecules in, in the study. And I think when he was left in charge of babysitting, but you know, it was very it was sort of very busy. It was it would we would treat it like a box of Lego, um, sort of pick up, you know, components and molecules and string them together. And then we'd sort of try and show him something we'd made. And obviously it wasn't really, you know, part of the plan to have to look at what we'd actually created. It was just sort of keep keep busy putting the molecules together. He clearly didn't inspire you to become a scientist, but I think he, in a way, did inspire you with your interest in current affairs and so on, because the news headlines were sacrosanct in your house. Do you think Absolutely. that was a product of, of you know, the family history in a way, this sort of sense that, you know, you've got to check what's happening in the world? Because I think it's definitely um, a product of kind of Cold War babies often. It's such an interesting thought, Marielle. I hadn't thought of it like that in the sense that you actually have to stop what you're doing in case war is going to be announced. I mean, yeah, I never thought of it like that. I just thought of I, he's definitely passed it on to me. You know, I'm somebody who shushes the whole family now before the pips. I can't <laughs> bear people speaking through the news headlines. And I think I've got that from him. He lived until he was 89 and his eyesight was very poor in the end, but he would sit there holding the paper very, very close to his face, to his eyes. But he would read phenomenally. You know, he'd read the stories about sort of Russia and Swiftnet and the sanctions, not sort of for the faint-hearted stuff. He'd really get into the nitty-gritty of, of sort of politics and geopolitics. And, but he and also had a, a, a sense of humour, I think, because there's a wonderful anecdote in the Times piece about Peter letting his daughters choose his ties when he went out. <laughs> and, and and they did become quite a signature look for him, didn't they? What, what were your favourites? And, and did you compete with each other to get him to wear the most ridiculous one? I'm sure we did on some subliminal level. I think we were always trying to please my dad with the best tie. He sort of dressed like a modest professor of chemistry in, in every other way, except for the ties. And they got sort of louder and brasher and more wonderful. I remember sort of silken birds of paradise, you know, those explosive orange flowers. And then we'd have sort of chili peppers. I think one of us got marijuana leaves onto him at one stage. <laughs> and then there was a, one that was a sort of Hermes tie, which started off as clouds and became sheep. It's like some sort of weird Freudian dream. And so he was very conventionally dressed, except for his ties, which became, yeah, his sort of sartorial identity and the talking point when he would be out at these very proper and quite serious chemical dinners or conferences. And he'd say, oh, yes, my daughter's chose this. And he was terribly proud of whatever we'd, we'd come up with. Emily Maitlis talking about her father, Professor Peter Maitlis, who died in May, aged 89. Joyce Reynolds was a British classicist and world-renowned epigrapher who in the 1950s drove an all-female party of archaeologists to sites in remote parts of Egypt, Syria and Turkey. Fellow classicist Professor Mary Beard was a student of Joyce's, as well as latterly a colleague. I remember very vividly how she scared the life out of me when I was a student. She had incredibly high standards. She really pushed us. But I think what was great about Joyce was that at the same time that she scared us, 
she also managed to convince us that she was really on our side, that she was batting for us, that she was wanting us to do better and better and better. Um, actually, sometimes she wanted us to beat the blokes, I think. And so it was a combination of extraordinary love and compassion with incredibly and impossible to reach high standards. You mentioned that it was it was something to beat the blokes with, possibly at times. She was quite a strident feminist, you know, and quite a quite a pioneering one in a way, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. She was a feminist. She was at Newnham, my college in Cambridge, which was an all women's college. And at that time, when I was a student, only twelve percent of students in the University of Cambridge were women, and Joyce was absolutely determined that we triumph. <laughs> So it was stick and carrot, but always with this idea that she wanted women to show that they could do not just as well as men, but better. Tell me a bit more about uh, Joyce's expertise in Roman epigraphy. Uh, yeah. What is epigraphy to start with and, and, and why is it important? Well, her specialism was inscriptions, that is, Roman texts, whether they're written in Greek or Latin, written on stone. They're inscriptions that can be anything from milestones to blogs was here to letters proudly inscribed from a Roman emperor. It's called epigraphy because it's something which is written on something. And it's hugely important in terms of the study of ancient history because it gets us underneath and beyond what rather usually posh Roman historians said about themselves. So we see much more in epigraphy about the ordinary people who might um, scrawl their names on a wall at Pompeii, but we also see a lot more of the administrative documents that somebody took the trouble to inscribe on a stone and then display in public. And you can look at the names of people and you can say, what kind of people are these? Are these Romans or are they native-born Libyans or who are they? So you get a much richer social history from the ancient world if you include the stuff that they left behind and inscribed on stone. And there's loads of it to discover still. And so why Joyce was going off through the desert, sometimes on her own, sometimes with Olwyn Brogan, to try to find more of these texts, which had just been neglected and not discovered. Didn't she find a, a, a lot of texts in Pompeii that were pretty sexually graphic, but sort of barely battered an eyelash? And, and what did that tell? What did that tell us about I, about those ancient Romans? I have to say that in the last period of her life, she was working on some graffiti scrawled in the wall of one house on Pompeii, and some of them were, I have to say, extremely rude. And Joyce was unfazed. I'm not always sure if Joyce realised quite how rude they were, um, <laughs> but. She was certainly unfazed. But it's a, it, it was one way into thinking, how were people talking about sex then? How did men and women, or men and men, or women and women, how do they communicate? How do they insult each other? So you're beginning just to lift the lid a little on what the ordinary people, sometimes free people, sometimes the enslaved people, were scrawling on the walls of this house. And sometimes you get a hint of what they might have been getting up to. She clearly had a big um, 
impre- made a big impression on you. You began a, a fund in Joyce Reynolds' name to pay for underprivileged students' living expenses. And in the field of classics, women are still pretty underrepresented. So how important was it for you personally to have a figure like Joyce in your life? Things are getting better for women in classics and other minority groups. They are getting better, but there's still a long way to go. And I think Joyce just put iron in the soul. You know, she made us all think that whatever we wanted to do, and that didn't actually have to be become an academic, but it could go into business or stand up comedy or whatever. We could do it better than we thought we could. And I think it was the impossibly high standards that gave us something to really try to live up to. I mean, she was tough, but she was wonderfully pleased when we did well. Professor Mary Beard talking about Joyce Reynolds, who died in September, aged 103. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, an obituary special, brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. This episode was presented by my colleague, Anna Temkin, the Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times. You can read more from the obituaries team at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print, including their annual roundup of the famous faces covered in the obituaries pages this year. That's published on Boxing Day. And Mariella Frostrup is on Times Radio Monday to Thursday from 1 to 3pm. You can listen on DAB, on your smart speaker or in the Times Radio app. The producer today was Olivia Case. The assistant producer was Verity DeCarla and the executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.